0: Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox show, this informative so and entertaining and show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone.
1: Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Naomi Schaefer Riley, author of Trail of Tears, How Washington is Destroying American Indians. Naomi is a weekly columnist for the New York Post and a former Wall Street Journal editor. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Naomi. Thanks so much. Well, apparently, as you say today, American Indians have the highest poverty rates of any racial group in the United States. Suicide is the leading cause of death among American Indian males aged 10 to 14. American Indian women face a higher-than-average risk of rape, and gang violence affects American Indian youth more than any other group. Uh, Naomi, these are terrible statistics, um, ones that... Uh, that I wasn't aware of, I guess. Uh, and, and I, I guess the first question is what are we talking about in terms of numbers when you're talking about Native Americans who suffer from the uh,
2: statistics that I just mentioned? Sure. Well, there are a little over uh, 2 million Native Americans in this country, and about a million of them live on reservations. And I should say that. The statistics for American Indians living on reservations are even worse than the ones you mentioned, as those concentrated in these areas of extreme poverty that you see um, throughout the American West, but really throughout the country as well. Um, so that's really uh, you're talking about well over a million people um, who are who are suffering uh, in the in the various ways that you were just describing. Well. Why don't we hear about them? I mean, we hear
1: about all, all other groups uh, or many of the other groups, uh, mm-hmm. disenfranchised groups, uh, uh, women, uh, the black community, Muslims, right. but we don't hear about American Indians. We don't hear about Native Americans in the way that you discuss in the book.
2: Right. So I think there are two factors. One is just simply geography. Um, a lot of these communities are extremely isolated. You know, uh, they're, they're living you know, 100 miles from, say, Rapid City, South Dakota. And unlike poverty that you see in, for instance, the South Bronx or inner city Chicago or Los Angeles, uh, where I think middle class Americans often have to go through those areas to get to or from work, um, it's, it's very hard to ignore, I think, poverty in the inner city. But it's very easy to ignore these problems in rural America. I think the second factor, though, is a little bit more complicated and somewhat psychological. I think, uh, you know, people have been educated to think that the problems of Native Americans are purely the result of things that happened 150 years ago. We learn in school about a history of war and forced assimilation that these people were made to endure. And I think we're sort of taught that there's really no turning back the clock and there's nothing that really we could do to help these people now. I think one of the other thing is we
1: blame the victim i mean i mean there that 's a perfect case of blaming the victim it 's their fault it 's this group of people 's fault uh, it 's not our fault that they 're in the deplorable conditions that they 're in uh, and I think there 's the to me, I think there's a little bit of that that, that, that comes across.
2: Um, right. I'm, I'm sure there there is some of that, but I think, you know, also what people fail to recognize and what I focus on in the new Trail of Tears is really the policies that are in place right now that are keeping Native Americans in these horrendous conditions. And the first policy that most most people, I think, don't understand is exactly what a reservation is. Now, of course, reservations were established in, in initially in order to get Native Americans out of our way so we could pursue manifest destiny and Westford expansion. Um, but now, a lot of people, I think, in my, in my conversation, seem to view reservations as a way of protecting Native Americans. But in fact, what reservations do is they take away economic freedom and property rights from Native Americans. They don't actually own the reservation land. It's held in trust by the federal government, uh, which means that, uh, for instance, if one Native American wanted to sell land on a reservation to another, they would actually have to get the permission of someone in Washington at the Bureau of Indian Affairs in order to do so. Um, most Native Americans can't get mortgages, actually, um, to purchase a home. There's an extreme housing shortage on some of these reservations. Um, Since they don't own the land, if they went to a bank and tried to get a mortgage, the bank would say, well, you don't have the underlying title to the land, so how could we give you a mortgage? And similarly, um, more than a quarter of Americans who start small businesses use their homes as equity in order to get a loan. But American Indians, again, simply don't have access to that capital so you 're saying in your book that I mean they 're not allowed to do that
1: all I mean the result of this is our policies uh, the bureaucrats in Washington and the politicians in Washington. Uh, uh, sort of promoting these policies that put the American Indians in this kind, these kinds of positions. So what do we do? I mean, it, it's a horrific situation. We have to first change the policies. Is that what you're saying? We, and- I
2: think so. I mean, I think there's an extraordinary level of paternalism here that's going on. You know, the only things that we hold legally, uh, the only people that we hold things legally in trust for other than American Indians are children and the mentally incompetent. So I think in the 21st century, it's pretty shameful that this is the way we even talk about our Indian policies. Um but- but I do think we need to rethink this and, and figure out a way to give Indians property rights. Um, I did some interviews in British Columbia with some First Nations in Canada, and there's a group of leaders up there uh, trying to push legislation. They are called the First Nations Property Ownership Act uh, in Parliament. And they actually have uh, quite a bit of support for it, and what it would do is essentially uh, give uh, Native Americans uh, control not you know, they, they have control over the land, you know, politically speaking but it would give them the underlying title to the land. So individual members of the First Nations there would be able to buy and sell it among themselves to whomever they wanted, um, and the First Nations there would still retain uh, you know, governmental control. So, you know, just like the city of Boston remains the city of Boston, regardless of whether people are buying and selling land there, um, so these, these reserves, as they're called in Canada, would remain reserves uh, in the sense that politically they would be run by First Nations, but individuals would have the kind of economic freedom and property rights they need to succeed.
1: Is this a bipartisan issue? Are there certain groups that don't want this to happen, that don't want this to occur? And, uh, and the, uh, you know, say between the Democrats and the Republicans in terms of Congress, what, what's the political left?
2: I I would classify this as a bipartisan failure in the United States. Um, uh, Basically, I think that there's just an enormous level of of interest among politicians and even among some tribal leaders in the status quo, uh, which is to say that if you're a representative from South Dakota or Montana um, and you are representing uh, an area that has uh, American American Indians in it, um, basically your job is just to bring home as much money as possible from Washington Um, Um, Your job is not to sit there and say, we need to reform these laws in particular ways and rethink the way Indian reservations are run. And similarly, I think a lot of uh, tribal officials um, are are doing a a disservice to the ordinary American Indians who I interviewed on the reservations by simply saying to their representatives in Congress, you know, you need to uh, bring more money from Washington without talking about, um, you know, these kind of, of freedoms and rights that would be so integral to economic growth. Yeah.
1: Well, in interviewing uh, the different uh, the, the populations, there were common issues amongst all of them, right? Um, well, let's talk specifically about what those common issues are um, because, you know, there were a lot of revelations in your book, actually horrific mm-hmm. ones in terms of the way uh, people live on the reservations, but they seemed there's a common thread to all of it.
2: Right. So, you know, one, res- one result of this lack of property rights is a- enormously high unemployment rates. I visited reservations where you would see an- upwards of 80% unemployment rate. There is almost no private sector on these reservations. And so the results of this are actually the same as you can see in, in many, unfortunately, in many third world countries. Um, when the public sector jobs are the only jobs available, they become enormously valuable. And the results can be seen, for instance, in the amount of nepotism and corruption that can occur. So for instance, you know, if people are essentially you know, I, I'd walk around it, some of these reservation centers you you would have to wait for someone to die in order to get a job. Um, but if you happen to know someone on the tribal council and you wanted to be the fourth grade teacher at the local school um, you would be able to get that job ahead of someone who is more qualified. Um, and actually, you know, the the education system is is the results are absolutely dismal. Uh, American Indians have a, a uh, lower than 50% high school graduation rate and it's even lower on reservations. Um, but you could even see how this lack of a private sector is also undermining the quality of the education. So, for instance, it's not only that teachers were getting jobs when they were unqualified, but I was told of a number of instances in which, um, you know, students who weren't showing up to school, uh, you know, they they might have a relative in tribal government who would call the teacher and demand that that student be passed through the 8th or ninth grade, even if they hadn't shown up to school in six months, um, because they happened to, you know, know someone uh, who had this kind of power. And so I think what you see is completely undermining uh, the quality of the education system, and, and that was certainly a common thread in, in a lot of the communities I visited as well. Uh,
1: another one of the common threads I think that you point out is the violent crime rate. You went to these, what, 310 reservations, but that it's
2: two and a half times higher than the national
1: average. Right.
2: There, there are 310 reservations. I did not visit all of them. Um, but yes, the, the crime rate is uh, just... It, it, it's extraordinary and what was most surprising to me was when I talked to um, older American Indians on these reservations they have said over and over it's gotten worse it's gotten worse they say oh look you know I, at least one of the one of the men uh, t- I spoke to said to me you know I didn't grow up with running water um, or you know electricity when I was very young um, but at least the crime wasn't so bad um, you know drugs are a huge problem on these reservations and alcohol and you know part of it it is definitely an economic situation. These these people are. Um, it, it is it is in many senses a, a, a deeply hopeless situation, and that's what you see also reflected in these in these high suicide rates.
1: Yeah, well, let's talk about the high suicide rate because that looks like it's a, the statistic is what fifty seven percent higher than the general population. That's yes, yeah, more than double the percentage rate. Um,
2: and what about the demographics for that? Who are they, uh, young people, old people? They're, they're typically young people, although I was on the Pine Ridge Reservation um, in South Dakota, which is in one of the poorest counties in the United States, and the, um, the, the average lifespan for a man is 48, and for a woman it's 52 I mean, these are this, the idea that this is a these are numbers uh, in the wealthiest country on on earth is just shocking, and those numbers are the result of both violent crime, some, some illness, but also extraordinarily high suicide rates. Um, and I just think you see this sense of hopelessness that is pervading these reservations. Um, you know, there have been you know there's been a lot of talk about this uh, this epidemic of teen suicide. Um, the other the other thing that you've seen on these reservations, and this is you know just deeply heartbreaking, I think, for, for any observer of these communities, is the high rates of, of sexual abuse and child abuse and assault. Um, Native American children are twice as likely to be abused as the national average. Um, and on some of these reservations, there's an extraordinarily high rate of molestation as well. Um, and here, I think, again, the American government, uh, the federal government, is really falling down on its job. Um, we are supposed to be protecting the rights, not just of tribes. We're supposed to be protecting the rights, of individual American Indians. They are American citizens, and we have to keep that in mind. And in some cases... The law enforcement uh, on these reservations has just completely uh, disintegrated. You see cases where uh, women uh, who go to report sexual assault, no rape kit is ever done. You see cases where children who have been abused are brought to tribal courts and the judge is presiding over cases where his family members are involved. Um, I think a lot of federal law enforcement are very reluctant to step on the toes of um, tribal law enforcement. And so there are, there's a great deal of, of conflict going on there as well. And,
1: and don't you think the isolation and the insulation breeds that kind of behavior as well? I mean, as a social worker, I've had experience in rural communities, and you get a lot of this kind of uh, social behavior because people are isolated and insulated, uh, and uh, this is, you know, an extreme case as you're describing yep. it on the reservation.
2: 100% true. And I think, you know, you we don't ever want to suggest that this is some kind of, you know, cultural problem. What we want to suggest is, look, this ca- these cases have parallels, whether you look at the Catholic Church in certain areas, whether you look at Penn State or um, all of these cases that, you know, there's, there are sects of Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn. I mean, when you look at these cases where there's an extreme isolation, where, uh, you know, reporting crimes to authorities is really not effective because you know, those authorities are... Re- related to the people that you want to enforce the law, um, it, it becomes very, very difficult to untangle this. And that's why I think it is the job. It has to be the job of federal authorities to, you know, to keep an eye out and to make sure that there is, um, you know, greater transparency in the system. There have been cases of whistleblowers, uh, you know, on some of these reservations. Spirit Lake Reservation is the most famous one where there's just been rampant sexual abuse of children. Um, and and uh, someone who blew the whistle on what was going on there, was actually demoted from his position for doing so. So I think we we need to, you know, get over whatever problems we have and just say, look, this is not a, a specifically Indian problem, but we need to say, these communities are suffering and we need to do more to protect their most vulnerable members. Well, you, I mean, obviously the
1: first step is awareness. And I, I don't think obviously, at least not as I see it, there isn't enough awareness that so the other people other in positions like you are who are making us more aware i mean just as a population of the problem because it, it it just doesn't seem like it's really out there in terms of this is something that we have to address as a country you know as a as a culture I, I, you don't see it in the same way that you do as i mentioned in the beginning of the show uh for other groups um um it
2: Am I? Is that correct? Or no, do you I see, think that's yeah. no, I think that's true. I mean, I think that, like I said, for various reasons, it's easier to ignore these problems. But I do think that, unfortunately, a lot of the solutions have to come with changing policies in Washington. And so, the more attention we can bring to the specific policies that have led people to this area to this point, you know, whether it's a lack of economic freedom, the lack of property rights, the problems with uh, you know jurisdiction and law enforcement, um, the 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 lack of protection for um, American Indian individuals and also we've just briefly touched on the educational system Um, uh, the Bureau of Indian Education spends uh, almost twice as much per pupil uh, on American Indian education and like I said the the results are dismal the buildings are falling down Um, I visited one school where you know I was was speaking to a principal who she was trying to help a second grader with some math homework and she proceeded to give him incorrect answer after incorrect answer Um, there is a just deep problem with the quality of education. Um, Another thing that I suggest in the book is that we need to find educational alternatives. Um, Some of the States that have the biggest Indian populations don't have charter school laws. I would love to see, uh, you know, South Dakota change its state laws so that at least we could think of some alternatives. Some outsiders could come in and, and set up, uh, you know, maybe a high-performing charter school, a KIPP Academy or something like that just off the reservation so parents could see, you know, no, these are the alternatives. There, there is another way, and, and there is a way for your children to actually have the same opportunities as other American citizens.
1: What about the the um, always the
2: population? What about
1: the younger people? I mean, did, were you, uh, you as you said you didn't go to all three hundred and ten reservations, but the reservations that you did go to in order to write this book, uh, like what did, what what exactly did you see in terms? Of the younger people, leaders, for instance. I mean, were you able to pinpoint any leaders in any one of these communities or reservations that are that are out there trying to to make people more aware of what the issues are?
2: I'm afraid the answer is largely no. And what these communities have unfortunately experienced. Over the last few generations is actually downward mobility. Uh, I know that sounds shocking given the conditions that i'm describing, but you know a lot of the the older people on reservations um, you know have seen uh, you know some of these uh, efforts to fix things, they have heard the tribal leaders say again and again, if only we get another grant from Washington, then everything will be fixed. And the answer, unfortunately, has been no. And so it's often the older people on reservations who have that kind of historical memory um, who are trying to push things in another direction. I would say, you know, the, the best, you know, the the sort of most hopeful scenes that I saw, I visited um, a couple of different Catholic schools on reservations, uh, one on the uh, Northern shore Cheyenne Reservation in Montana, and and one on Pine Ridge. Um, And those schools are actually doing the most, I think, in terms of educating kids. Um, At Red Cloud uh, Indian School, which is on the Pine Ridge Reservation, they actually have uh, more... Gates Millennium Scholars. I don't know if you know what those are, but they receive full scholarships to college and graduate school as well, if they want them. Uh, they have more from that school than from any other school in the country. Um, and they're, I think, doing just amazing work. They don't charge any tuition to students, um, and and they're really trying. Unfortunately, um, they get a lot of pushback from tribal leadership because of the difficult history that Catholic schools have had on these reservations, but I think they are trying very hard to lift these kids um, out of poverty to give them the kind of education that they need to succeed and perhaps be able to, you know, come back and, and help lead their communities in the future. So what have been some of the problems specifically
1: with the church, with the Catholic church, say, the schools on the reservations –
2: Oh, sure. Well, I mean, the the church and, uh, you know, it's not just the Catholic church. There were other religious institutions and and other uh, institutions that had the boarding schools that were on or just off the reservation. And, you know, uh, many years ago, uh, American Indian children were sent, um, some of them were forced to be sent, some of them were voluntarily sent by their parents to these schools. And at these schools, there was also a a history of abuse that happened, um, but also many of the leaders of these schools forced children to not... Their native languages to give up their tribal customs, and it was, you know, an effort to sort of uh, forcefully assimilate them. And there is a, certainly an institutional memory on these reservations among older people of these experiences, and they're, as a result, I think very rightly suspicious uh, of these schools. Um, but I can honestly say, you know, first of all, most of these schools now are run almost completely by Native Americans. Uh, the, the certainly the, the leadership that I met were, were all Native Americans. Were Were all people um, who had grown up on these reservations and who, you know, had basically seen these schools as a way to try to change the situation for their communities. Actually, these schools now have some of the most extensive programs for trying to preserve tribal language and culture um, than any other place uh, in Indian country. So that, I think, is an, is an interesting way that they've really tried to reach out and, and try to fix some of the, the history uh, to the extent that they can. What about
1: intermarriage? How does that does that impact or affect uh, uh, young people on the reservations? Or do they all oh, do um, Native Americans tend to marry within their culture, and, and there isn't too much? And I say intermarriage, marrying people outside of the reservation.
2: Well, there is some, but I mean, obviously, the the isolation is extreme. But you you certainly do see, you know, American Indians leaving the reservation and coming back. You know, they'll uh, you know in, in uh, a place like South Dakota. I mean, you you have um, if you go to Rapid City, which is 100 miles from the Pine Ridge Reservation, you can see a large uh, neighborhood of uh, where American Indians are mostly living in the city, and they have certainly you know married married white people, and and uh, and some of them have gone back to the reservation, and some of them have stayed. Um, You know, so I think there is a good deal of mixing in that sense, and it it just depends on part on the geographical isolation, not just on the cultural norms. What about the impact of the Internet, or have you seen any impact? It's really interesting. Um, You know, a lot of people, uh, you know, say to me... um, don't, you know, don't American Indians realize that they could just leave the reservation and things would be so much better for them? And in many cases, you know, many people do. They think, um, you know, uh, the... The, uh, the 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 circumstances, even if they were starting from scratch, would be so much better in another area where they could at least work themselves up. You know, um, eventually be able to buy a small house, or, or uh, you know, at least not face the kinds of uh, of statistics that we were talking about earlier. Um, and my my response, I don't. Um, I think people don't understand that rural poverty is really much different than urban poverty. These are people who don't see. Um, you know, they, they don't wake up in the morning and see people going off to middle-class jobs. They may not know anybody in their family who is employed. They may not know anybody who's grown up in a two-parent family. They may not know, know anyone who has a high school degree in their immediate family. And so, um, you know, they say, well, uh, like, you, like you said, what about the Internet? And don't they have access to television? And don't they realize all these things? I, from talking to the children, you know, I, I interviewed some of the kids at these schools. I think what they see coming through the internet and coming through TV screens is like another planet. It's 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 interesting to watch, but it doesn't seem to have much of an effect on their day to day lives.
1: So it's more it's not a reality to them. It's it's a it, as you say it's, it's a, when they see stuff on the internet or they have access to it in any way. Uh, it. it they have nothing to compare it to in terms of the yeah, way they I mean,
2: live. It's, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's like if you were watching Kim Kardashian. I mean, how much, how much effect does she have on your life and how much <laughs> do you see your, see yourself you know, in, in, in relation to her? I, just, I think it's so otherworldly to people living in these places. And not surprisingly, when they look around them, you know, middle-class America doesn't really seem like anything they know. So,
1: what's been the response to your book, both, you know, both in Washington, obviously, and also uh, for the people that you know and have contact with on the
2: reservations? Well I think for for people uh, you know in Washington, I think there is a, is a great deal of surprise, um, not in the statistics I think that there are certainly people in Washington who read the stories that appear every so often in newspapers and and they're aware of this suicide epidemic and they're aware of the low education level so they, I think they're, they're kind of aware of that. I think some of the surprise for people um, has come from looking at these policies. I really think that there's a great misunderstanding of what a reservation is, and so more and more of the people I talk to just say I had no idea that that 's what it meant. I had no idea that you couldn 't get a mortgage. I had no idea that you couldn't buy and sell land without someone from the Bureau of Indian Affairs coming to tell you what fair market value is for your land um, so I think that's there. I think I've gotten quite a number of emails from people uh, you know who are on uh, who are living in these conditions who have you know thanked me for you know bringing these things to light and talking about them because uh, unfortunately, our conversation about Native Americans largely focuses on the names of football teams or whether Columbus Day is offensive. And um, I really was hard-pressed to find typical people on reservations who thought these issues were a priority. I think if, if you were living in these conditions, uh, the notion that football team names would be at the top of your list for where you wanted to have a national conversation uh, would be pretty absurd. Yeah.
1: So maybe, Naomi, we need to have the conversation and, um, we need to have those kinds of conversations in our schools, and we have to have them in a different way. I mean, this has to be part of the educational process to the kids on the outside, doesn't it? And the general I,
2: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the way Native American history is taught is, you know, it ended about 100 years ago. I, I was reading a story by a, a piece by a college professor who said that the majority of the students uh, who were in her introductory class, which was uh, had to do with American history, Native American history, um, thought that the vast majority of Native Americans were dead. Um, so I, I really think that most American kids walk away with the impression that this history ended 100 years ago and there's really not much to be done. Well, are they still teaching? I mean, cowboys and Indians. Of course, when I grew up, that's
1: that's that's all that we had. I mean, that was that was the extent of any kind of uh, education in terms of Native Americans or American Indians. And uh, I think, no,
2: I don't. I don't think the history is taught in the same way. I mean, I think we are teaching about the Trail of Tears. I think we are teaching about the forced assimilation and war and the massacres and smallpox and all of these things. Um, I think most American kids will walk away thinking. Uh, you know, we've committed genocide, I, I think, but 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 they think that's the end of the conversation. I, I really think they think this is all, as they say, ancient history.
1: Yeah, so where do we go from here? Well, I guess the first place we go is to, to read your book, Trail of Tears, How Washington is Destroying American Indians, Naomi Schaefer Riley. We've reached the end of the show, but um, you can buy the book online bookstores everywhere but also Naomi where can we what website can we go to for more information about you and the book and what you're doing
2: sure you can read some articles uh, about the, that are based on my reporting from the new trail of tears uh, at com, and you can read some of my other columns there as well and you can purchase the book on you know amazon or barnes and noble one of those websites Terrific. It was great talking to you today. Naomi, Naomi Riley, Trail of Tears. We're
1: going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Sox, your social worker with a microphone. Uh, don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
2: Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein.
1: Hi, we're back. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show. Uh, joining me this morning is Erica Reicher, author of What Great Parents Do, Simple Strategies for Raising Kids Who Thrive. Erica is a psychologist, Ph.D., author, and parent educator, and she earned her Ph.D. from the University of Chicago in psychology. What Great Parents Do. Um, I Welcome to the show, first of all. Nice to have you on Thank this you, morning. Yes, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Um, I, I'm a parent. I don't know if I'm one of those great parents, uh, and I'm maybe. And I've had raised three boys, so I have had some experience besides being a social worker. Uh, interesting book because your book, as you say, one of the things it does do it examines and uh, family relationships and presents. In a simple way, and I think this is really true, in a very concise way, 75 key strategies parents can use to reshape kids, uh, making the assumption that we do have to reshape kids and their challenging behavior at
0: times. Um, yeah, it's not about the kids, though, I would say, and more about the behavior. It's really not about the, the child as a person, but really, you know, the behavior that you see. Okay. So, so we're we'll, going yeah, be- to... <laughs> that's a good distinction, right? Because we're not going to be able to reshape. We got the
1: kid we got, but now let's talk about exactly. the behavior. Yeah, because that's exactly. what can be changed. All right. So the goal is what? The goal is to what? If you're going to do that, you know, kids present these challenging behaviors that perhaps are, that are, are not um, productive for them and for the family. So what are we going to do? You say you want to create strong family bonds um, and just guide the kids so that they can become healthy, kind, and responsible adults. It sounds yeah. simple, well, but it's not. A lot of,
0: so the book, the book kind of ranges between really specific strategies, and I can go into some of those later, and, and more big picture ideas. So I think fundamentally one of the things, you know, when you said, so what do we do fundamentally is, um, you know, we need to be able to maintain a strong emotional connection and a very loving relationship with our kids even when we need to discipline them. And it's walking that fine line between um, discipline and love. I think that is so important. And so, so the book goes into strategies. Well, so how do we do that, right? Yeah. And how do we do it in a way?
1: Uh, your book is not this big. Uh, uh, Book a psychology book that most parents, unless you're a psychologist or in the field, are going to go through. Your book is not one of those books that you kind of no. you buy mm-hmm. and then you put it down, but you never really read it. Yours is kind of very simple, as it says. That's part of the uh, obviously part of the uh, uh, the the uh, description. Simple strategies, and so and that's what we need: simple strategies. But sometimes yeah. it's simple strategies for behavior or
0: challenging behavior that's not so simple. That is true. That is true. Well, so, you know, to your point about the book, uh, it's definitely not a book for, um, you know, just psychologists or clinicians. It's really a book for everybody. I wrote it for parents and grandparents and, and caregivers and teachers and anyone who has kids in their life. And I really wrote the book that I wanted when I first had kids because there's piles of great research and books out there with tons of good information. And I read most of them when I was um, doing graduate school and, and even after. Um, but there was really no one single place that just had summaries of this information. I didn't need the whole book. I, there was only a couple paragraphs and some dog-eared pages and highlighted passages, and that's where the nuggets of information were. So what I wanted to do with this book was two things. I wanted to give parents and educators um, and family members bite-sized summaries of the most useful information about the art and science of parenting so it was really easy to digest, almost like cliff notes, <laughs> like a cheat sheet. Yeah, which is um, what then, we all look and the for. Second, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, I like that, too. Yeah. And then the second thing was to be very action-oriented. So once you have this idea, okay, here's this nugget of good information, great idea, what do I do with it? What does that look like if I put it into practice? How do I, what do I say, and how do I do things differently to be in alignment with that? So there's a section in every one of these strategies in the book. And by the way, the strategies are only, they're very short. The average is one to two pages, but the shortest one is one paragraph. And the longest one is four or five pages. So it's really one or two pages each. And they all end with a section called try this, where it takes the information that's summarized above very briefly, sometimes in just a few paragraphs. And it translates that into, here's what it would look like if you were looking over the shoulder of a friend of yours who knew how to finesse these situations. What does he or she say and do? And what does that actually look like? And so it's like, you know, it's like, Looking over the shoulder of someone who you think has a good parenting skills. Right.
1: So, oh, like that. Okay, that's the overview of the book, and that's the premise yeah. of the book. But let's talk. I, let's. I want to talk about specific. Specifics, like what are the challenging behaviors? Because there are some, mm-hmm. you know, very common kinds of things that children do, as you know, in the developmental process that we all have to deal with. And if our, right. I guess I call a default behavior isn't so good as mm-hmm. a parent, then mm-hmm. we got to mm-hmm. do. A, we have to change our 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 reaction, as you say, because we do want to have a loving relationship with our kids, even when we are uh, challenging them. Also, so, okay, so what do we start with? What are some of the... Well,
0: okay, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of challenging behaviors. I would say one of the most, most common ones is whining, um, uh, not listening. Of course, tantrums are in there, um, more common for some kids than others. Um, and, you know, our kids kind of know how to push our buttons in a way. They're learning that. And, um, you know, one of the strategies that I have in the book that, that can help you deal with this is just a, is a mental reset. And I call it seeing your kids as scientists and explorers, right? So if we can, if we look at our kids and we see them as being scientists, we know that they're out to explore the world, right? They're doing it with little kids. We see them doing experiments all the time. You know, they're pouring things and dropping things and banging things and tasting things, but kids are also doing experiments in the social world. And that means they're doing experiments on the important people in their life, primarily parents, teachers, caregivers, siblings, and the things that they need to figure out and this is important, and it's their job, by the way, they should be doing this, is, you know, how do I get what I want from you? What happens if I do blank, (laughs) right? And so those are some of the questions they're trying to answer. And so as parents, if we think about it that way, then it makes things much easier in a way because then we have to ask ourselves this question, what do we want our kids to learn about us, right? So I always encourage people in my workshops to think about their kids, to almost really literally picture their kids in little white lab coats with little notebooks, right, and they're watching everything we do, right, and they're learning how do we, how, to, how does mom work, how does dad work, how does my teacher work, how does grandma work, um, and they're they're making notes in a sense. It's not literally, um, but imagine them writing a little note in their lab book that says, "Hmm, dad tends to get me." The toy I want if I have a tantrum in public, but not so much at home, right? They notice these things, and they will act on them, and and they should. It's their job to be testing and experimenting. And so when we see our kids as scientists, we can reframe behavior that can seem defiant and see it instead as being curious. All I right so let's start with if just I little, ignore you. <laughs>
1: okay well then let's start with specifically okay like for instance and you mentioned it whining because you know they okay. seem to just kind of wh- once they're out of the womb they can they start whining. <laughs> uh but well, um, crying. Yeah crying, crying and then whining the <laughs> yeah. And so you're standing in the kitchen with your with your kid and you're trying to make dinner and you've got two other kids and uh, one in one of them's whining and pulling at your
0: Skirt or your pants and wanting something, and uh, what do you do? Okay, that is such a great question. This goes to another strategy in the book, and I see this I call the strategy seeing the difference between goals and methods. So, okay, so in the scenario that you painted, you're, you're trying to make dinner, your child's in the kitchen, they want something. Let's say it's a glass of milk or something, and you're probably putting them off because you're busy making dinner and you don't have time to really stop and get it for them. But, They're trying to up the ante because they want what they want, and they'll maybe start doing something like whining. Okay, so let's say your two- or three-year-old starts whining for a glass of milk. You might say, hold on a sec, honey, I'll get it for you in a minute. Let me just finish the pasta, or let me just finish this, or, you know, right? We're trying to keep the momentum going, especially when we're always running behind as parents. You know, there's dinner time, bath time, bedtime. Um, Okay, so they're whining. So I want you to separate that behavior into a goal and a method. Okay, so in this example, the goal is, let's say, milk the thing that they want from you, right? But keep in mind, in other cases, the goal will not always be tangible like milk or a toy or an ice cream or another story. It could be something intangible like your attention or privacy in the case of a teenager, for example. So keep in mind, goals can be something in the world or something more intangible, right? And the method is, in this case, whining, right? But let's imagine a teenager who's you know, walking around after you saying, can I borrow the keys? Can I borrow the keys? Can I borrow the keys? That's badgering (laughs) either way you know, that's the method. Okay. So if we separate the goal and the method, it gives us lots of things that we can do, right? So we can recognize that the goal that they're after, whether it's the car keys in the case of the teenager or the glass of milk in the case of the toddler is a worthy goal. We understand why they want that. It makes sense to us. And one of the other strategies related to this in the book is starting with empathy, which is a great place to start in any relationship and any conversation. And so instead of just saying, no, you can't, Right or trying to put them off and not have the conversation, we can recognize the goal. So that's step one of saying, I can hear you really want a glass of milk, or I can see that you really wish you could borrow the car. Here's the problem. The method, which is the behavior, is the problem. The whining is the problem. The badgering is the problem. So it's not the thing that they want that's the problem. It's how they're going about it. It's their method. So if we use whining here as a the method, then we help them see there's other methods to get the same goal. If you can kind of picture a little triangle with the goal at the top, and whining at one corner of the triangle, we want to like nix that corner and go to the other corner of the triangle, which is an alternative method. So we instead give of kids yelling an at them method. and screaming, stop whining, which is what maybe yeah. one tends to yeah, do, which would escalate, which yeah. would escalate, and it kind of makes you know it, it creates tension and conflict, um, and it's it's not going to make the situation better. It's probably going to make it worse. And now you're really going to be interrupted in making dinner. So. Um, So this idea, so you have the goal and you have the method. Give them an alternative. And here's a really important caveat. When you give your child an alternative method, let's say your two-year-old, make sure you tell them something that they can be successful at. This will vary by your child's age and temperament. So if you have a two-year-old who's whining for milk, you might like to give them the alternative method of, I can see that you really want a glass of milk. But I'd like you to go wait for five minutes in the living room and maybe clean up a little bit while you're waiting. <laughs> you know, then I can get you the milk. That's not going to fly with a two-year-old. With a two-year-old. Not that really does not waiting work. that long, right? Yeah. But, but what you could say to a two-year-old is moving in the right direction. Say something like, honey, I can see you're really thirsty and you'd like a glass of milk right now. If you will stop whining and say, please, can I have some milk? I'll get it for you. So it's not ideal, but it's definitely moving them toward an alternative behavior that's far preferable to what they're doing. And then you can, in a sense, reward that behavior, the new method, by giving them the goal, which is the milk. So you create a new pathway for them to get what they want. Now they're learning, oh, if I say please, and I ask for something without whining, that's going to happen too. And the more that you redirect that behavior into the new method and then help them achieve their goal through that method, asking please to get the milk, and not giving in to the whining just because it gets so loud you can't stand it anymore... That, that's the way to do it. But, again, keep in mind that alternative that you propose has to be something your kids can do successfully.
1: Yeah. Okay, so right? we're you reconditioning. Yep. Yeah. We're reconditioning, their, way. <laughs> yeah. reconditioning yeah. their behavior and yours as well. And it has to be yeah. obviously exactly. appropriate, age appropriate, and right. also has to be appropriate, as you said, for the temperament of, the, of your kid. Okay, but here's another one. Exactly. You talk about sidestepping power struggles because that's, that's mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's constant. You know, you mentioned teenagers, you mentioned two-year-olds. I think that's throughout their whole lives in their relationship with parents. So how do you sidestep power struggles? Because I think it's a, a constant sort of power struggle between parents and children and separation individuation to
0: use social work terms, you know, to, but mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. yeah. So how do we do that? Well, I mean, power struggles are something that, you know, ki- kids, many kids will try to draw you into and you really have to see that it's happening and, and not be provoked and not get pulled into it. Right. Um, but, but interestingly, you know, there's two, there's two elements of this. One is appreciating that you do have power as a parent and, So sharing your power is a really good way to avoid power struggles. A lot of times parents and toddlers get into these, you know, drag out fights really, you know, on the way out the door because their three-year-old daughter wants to wear their princess shoes on a rainy day instead of their boots, (laughs) which we want them to wear. Right. And so we insist and we insist and they insist and they throw themselves on the floor. Right. And now we're really late. Um, And so we start getting forceful and if we can finesse that situation, it can turn out much better. So, You know, one way is to share your power. Let your kids make choices and make mistakes, right? Let them experience the consequences of their choices. So the only caveat to this idea is, you know, if you live in Northern California where I do and you let your uh, kid wear flip-flops on a rainy day, they're going to get cold and wet feet, but they're not going to get frostbite and lose a toe. So if you live in, let's say, um, North Dakota, you might have to reconsider that, right? Um, But look for opportunities To let your kids make choices and experience the natural consequences of their choices as long as nobody's health or safety is at stake, right? Um, And this can be hard because I think as parents, we don't like our kids to be uncomfortable. We don't want our kids to, you know, um, have cold and wet feet because it doesn't feel good. So we try to save them from that. Um, Do you think we really try let, to save, yeah. you know,
1: I want to, I'm not sure that we tr- try to save them from that. I think we get sometimes as parents locked into mm-hmm. a certain way things should be done, and maybe they don't necessarily have to be that way. I always give this, well, uh, true this true. is an example. Yeah. I have a, my mother, this is many, many years ago. I won't tell you how many, many years ago, but she was a social worker, she is, she's in her 90s now. But I used to argue with her giving that example you gave, walking out the door and having your kid mm-hmm. wear flip-flops when it's going to be mm-hmm. pouring mm-hmm. rain in Northern California, I wanted to wear my best Mary Jane shoes, if you remember those shoes, and I didn't Uh want to wear the Uh tie shoes or whatever you're supposed to wear. Right. And she would get locked into a power struggle, she said, but then she decided, wait a minute, why don't I just get a second pair of Mary Janes and let you wear those every day, and those will be your everyday Uh shoes, and you'll still have a good pair of good shoes to wear on, you know, special occasions. Worked out very well. (laughs) I mean, it was a very...
0: But, know, not,
1: but not engaged, but yeah. I do
0: think a lot of times we are trying to save our kids from discomfort or failure or any other painful situation, right? That's a really normal and natural thing to do as parents. Um, we just have to be careful that we're not inadvertently keeping them from having experiences that they can learn from. Well, but right? you said and, making and choices, some,
1: and I think that's really mm-hmm. important, that ability to yeah. make choices within the context of choices that are going to be healthy and there are a lot of different kinds of choices that maybe you wouldn't choose for yourself but there's still healthy choices for your kid which is I think what you're saying right
0: yeah exactly exactly you have to let your kids be the person that they are and they will they will like different things probably they will um, be interested in different things and they will probably make different choices and we have to we have to learn how to tolerate that it can be it can be challenging yeah. Um, one, other, one of my favorite tips back to the power struggle issue that I really like, it's the, one of the shortest ones in the book, this is a simple one, and it works best for really little kids, is I call it pivoting. And pivoting is the art of saying yes instead of no, but meaning the same thing. And so what that looks like in practice is something like this. Instead of saying, no, we can't go to the park until you finish your snack or your nap or whatever, you would say, yes, we can go to the park as soon as you're done with your snack. Uh, It just sounds better. It's less, um, you know, it's less provocative for some kids. You know, for some kids, uh, the word no is like a red cape and a bull. Um, So depending on the temperament of your kids and the age of your kids, that can work well. And it just sounds more agreeable. And it's a very easy one to do. That's a, that's an excellent one. I mean, that's very simple. Putting, you know, they, we talk about
1: that with adults all the time. Put it in the positive rather than in the negative. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. much more appealing. I mean, and to be able to do that with your kid, I think that's great. I mean, I, that probably works in so many situations with your kid. Cause I think sometimes we do want to, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. Well, what can I do? Uh, you know, let's, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's better to say yes instead of condition than to say no. Um, and you know, what you just mentioned something I think is really important to point out that this book, even though it's focused on the parent-child relationship or the adult-child relationship, is really actually about relationships in general. Yeah, and so the I would vast say so. Majority, yeah, so the vast majority of the strategy in the, in this book, even though the examples are really focused on kids, are really about relationships in general, and they will work with other adults. They'll work with your partner, your spouse, your sister, your brother, your coworkers, <laughs> um, and so, I, you know, I encourage you to think more broadly as you, as you were about the pivoting, um, but here's another one that's similar to that. You know, I talked about uh, starting with empathy, and that's in the book, and I mentioned it briefly earlier um, when we were talking. Empathy is the most powerful parenting tool or really relationship tool that we all have already. We don't have to do anything. We just have to remember to use it. Starting with empathy means meeting feelings with feelings. So you remember that example where we talked about, you know, letting your kids wear the flip-flops instead of the boots? But what if you live in North Dakota and that's, they will literally get frostbite and lose trouble if you let them do that? Or, or let's say your kid hates wearing a seatbelt. That's not going to be a choice you let them make. They yeah. can't get in the car without wearing a seatbelt or being in their car seat. So empathy then can work really well in those situations because you can just acknowledge their experience and their feelings without having to fix anything or change anything, but it it, it creates a connection. And this gets back to the point of how do you maintain an emotional connection even when you're having structure and discipline? So, you know, let's say your kid didn't want to wear the car seat. Obviously, that's not a choice they can make. So you would say something like, you know, meeting feelings with feelings. Honey, I can see you really don't like the car seat. You really wish you didn't have to wear it. It's itchy and scratchy and you don't like it. That's all you have to do. You don't have to say, but this, but that, but we have to. You can explain why we wear the car seats, but you really want to start with this reflection of what it's like for them and the fact that they don't like it. I think a lot of times people are are worried about kind of saying what they think their kids are meaning because they're worried it will amplify it. But actually the opposite happens. Right. So if you've you ever think, had Erica, you can of... overdo it. I've been in situations yeah. in, in New York uh-huh.
1: City, for instance, and I see some uh-huh. parents who are, you know, will have, you know, you're giving an example like of a two-year-old or a three-year-old or four-year-old and being in a, uh, a restaurant with them and parents constantly asking a three-year-old or a four-year-old what they want and how they want it and sort of like really... I think, with in some ways, it's like overdoing it. Like maybe you have to be a, you know, you have to not constantly be sort of bending to the kids, it appears anyway, to the oh, kids. Oh, well,
0: yeah, I totally agree with you, but that's yeah. not exactly—that's not at all what I'm saying. So yep. the idea of, you know, do you want this or do you want that? Do you want the hot dog or the hamburger? Do you want to sit here or do you want to sit there? Yeah. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Empathy, empathy is not necessarily changing anything about the situation. It's giving your kid the hot dog and they go, I want the hamburger. And you say, you really wish you could have had the hamburger instead, but you asked for the hot dog and so that's what we picked. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. You really wish you could change now. I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's not changing anything about the situation necessarily. It is only reflecting what your child is experiencing. Yeah. It and does I think that's means ri- you're yeah. catering to them anyway. Mm-hmm. And
1: yeah. I that's key. I want, yeah, so I wanted you to reiterate that because that's important. Yeah. You know, I feel, right. you know, maybe you feel like you made the wrong choice, you didn't want, but you made the choice and now this is the choice that you made or well, whatever. And, and I understand and here's, it. Here's
0: another thing I would watch out for the but. Because when we start with empathy, which is a way to de-escalate those those moments that are, you know, threatening to kind of create a lot of tension or conflict, if we say, you know, you really wish you you could change your mind and have something else to eat today, and then we say, but, that can kind of undermine that nice little connection we made and, and, and send the message that we're minimizing the feelings that we just were reflecting. I prefer, here's another really simple, small change. It's easy to do. And it's really mostly important when you're starting with empathy and about to not change anything only reflect and I would use the word and or also or at the same time so you might say you know you really wish that you could have the hamburger instead you realize you don't want the hot dog anymore you know that's frustrating and it's what you picked and we already bought it it just sounds a little bit better just like the pivoting and instead of but as in never mind (laughs) so that's a very simple small word change that can help when you're trying to Mm de-escalate. Yeah, I mean, that, that,
1: you're right. That can make a huge difference. Uh, we have a couple of minutes left, so we can go through some because one of the things you talk about, fair warning, what does that mean?
0: So fair warning basically means when we, this is in the area of discipline, when we, you know, I'm a big fan of helping kids do the right thing, um, and so, but consequences are sometimes necessary. So when we do need to give kids consequences for, you know, doing something unacceptable, like, let's say, you know, hitting their sibling with the toy truck, Um, we need to remember that kids don't always know what's okay and what's not okay. They're testing and experimenting. And especially with young kids, it's not obvious to them that, you know, flushing dad's wedding ring down the toilet is a no, no, (laughs) or even when they're really young, that hitting someone is a no, no. So we need to give kids fair warning of fair consequences. And that just means if we're going to give a consequence, we need to let kids know in advance what the rules are, and why we have the rules. And so, you know, Let's say we walk in and we see the, the, the ring circling down the toilet. <laughs> Instead of saying, I can't believe you did that, you know, I'm taking away your train set, that's, you know, you're grounded or whatever, you know, we have to recognize with our two-year-old or three-year-old, right, in this case, you know, honey, I know you're, you know, that's really interesting for you to do, but I can't get that back. You know, now I'm not going to be able to have that, that back. It's, it's, it's gone forever and that's really special to me. You can't put things down the toilet except for what belongs in the toilet. You can be specific about that. If you do that again, honey, you know, there's, and then you have to figure out what the right consequence yeah. is. So,
1: and that's the um, fair warning. So, we, have, we, you know, I, I could go on because this is uh, there are so many more things, tools, techniques, etc., that parents should learn about from your book what great parents do and I want to mention again what great parents do you can buy it at bookstores everywhere online uh erica reicher it's a great book it really is it's like that little handy Thank book you. you can put in your man bag or your pocketbook or wherever you put it but um yeah
0: yeah oh thanks so I much like for to being say here. that I that my two favorite places to recommend this book are your bedside table and your bathroom Oh, okay, bedside table and bathroom, you've got it. <laughs> yeah, because it's, a good, it's, it's like a two- or three-minute easy read, if that's all you have. You, get, you can get something in two to three minutes.
1: Right, it's your reference book.
0: Um, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm
1: Catherine Zox, we have to say goodbye, your social worker with a microphone, and uh, have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.